Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! Move! Dad! Move, Dad! Move, Dad! Get out! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, J.M. Prater, and I am joined by my co-host and... Patrick Green. What What else were you going to say? Oh, nothing. Nothing. You co-bitch? Co-bitch. We all co-bitches on this podcast. co you doing, man? I'm well. I'm well. I am... I had a really shitty night of sleep, and then I took a sleeping pill at 4 a.m., and I woke up at 8.30 completely refreshed. I was really hungover all day yesterday, though. You don't look like you took a sleeping pill. You like you look pretty, you uh, pretty awake. I am. Say. I am. Like it was just weird. I woke up and my dog was going crazy. The dogs outside Nick, were barking all night long, and they always do it. So I think it put her on edge. But all's good. Uh, it's a good day. I have friends coming into town. Got some yeah. stuff going on tomorrow. So yeah. You know, if the dogs are all barking all night, just like look outside to make sure they're not barking at. Because I'm I'm reading a book right now on the Golden State Killer, which is very fucking scary. And uh, that was, like, one of the main indicators that, like, people were about to get raped and murdered was that really? the dogs were barking. Well, I'm not saying it's going to happen to you. I'm just saying, you know, well, it, I'm not saying it's not. These dogs are in a um, garage, and the garage is closed. And so they're okay. just barking in the garage all night long, almost every day. That's people, uh, people a, really a really good metaphor, I think, for, yeah. <laughs> for what life is like sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, here um, we are today to discuss uh, another uh topic of conversation which is ridley scott but we wanted to announce that we're kind of scaling back a little bit on our episode release schedule we're kind of trying to take a little bit of a break during the summer we'll see how that goes we're crazy busy with our other podcast which is shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast we're throwing in a really big event in november if anyone is interested november 13th a six-hour event two-hour q a uh, or a two-hour panel, one-hour Q&A, a private screening. It's going to be really, really exciting. There's going to be a Blade Runner pop-up bar right down the street from us. Everyone get in on this. Yeah, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't do too much cross advertising on these shows, but we should because like a lot of Blade Runner fans are also Alien fans and vice versa. So definitely, we're going to be there in person at this event. Obviously, we're going to be having a great time. We would love to see you guys. If you go to BladeRunnerPodcast.com, you can get tickets there. Um, and there's still uh, quite a few available. They just went on sale. So we'd love to see you guys. And, you know, even if you're just an alien fan, come anyway. 
We'll welcome you. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be this is our first kind of endeavor as a throwing an event, and uh, I think our partner for, on Shoulder of Orion, Dan, is like crazy excited about it. We're all excited about it, but he's like taking the lead on it. So. He's like he's like actually crazy excited about yeah, it. Yeah, he really is. He's lost his fucking mind. But yeah. you know, it, also this is kind of a proof of concept, right? Because if this goes great and if it goes really well, maybe we can do this with alien stuff too in the future. So that's you know, okay. we'll see what the future brings. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to stay in this little recording booth. I'm kidding. Uh, but we're today, all going to go to Jamie's bedroom. Yes, and we're, we're all going to go there. We're going to take his sleeping pills, listen to the dogs bark, throw a big and have a weird fucking event. event in my bedroom, yo. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, before we get into the episode, too. So yeah, so that's one. So we're going to be releasing a little bit more sporadically throughout the summer. We'll be back on track again in the fall with you know every other week. But also want to give a special shout out. We have a new patron, Darren Gold, who is giving at a really generous level. He's super cool. We've been interacting with him a little bit um, on Facebook. And so, Darren, thank you so much for your patronage. Um, you guys who support the show are the reasons we can do things like put on audio dramas, hold events, um, get out special editions of various things. Like, like it, it is all because of you, let alone upgrading audio equipment, paying our website fees, paying off um, our debt for things that we've had to borrow for in the past. It's just, it's just absolutely incredible. So if you want to join Darren as a patron, go to perfectorganism.com slash support. Or you can just go to Patreon and look us up there. Uh, we will give you a shout out. You get discounts on merchandise. You'll get early episode access. You'll also get a lot of exclusives. We've been doing a m- much more of that lately. So if you go in there now as a patron, you'll see we have reviews of like you know Godzilla King of the Monsters. We have exclusive um, cinema discussion episodes, like one on Interstellar. There's another one going up momentarily that was just recorded yesterday. There's a lot of stuff in there, and we would love to welcome you to the Perfect Organism family. So consider it. Totally. And we're going to be revamping our perfect organism wing, a little bit of Patreon, doing some special content, me and Patrick, just to kind of bulk it up for all of you great people who help support us every month. And it's great. I mean, most of the money that we use for our fees, hosting fees, I pay for. So some of that money comes to me to kind of reimburse me for that. So we really thank you guys. It's just an honor. It's really an honor. So we want to give back more. Yeah. So you want to talk about Ridley? Let's talk about Ridley Scott. So, you know, we did an episode during... (laughs) Shut (laughs) Fuck you, dude! (laughs) We did an episode during our, um, uh, I can't remember, it's called 40 Miles of Bad Road series on aliens that was really well received on James Cameron. And we were struck by the fact that although we talk about Ridley all the time, we don't really spend the time to get into him as an artist specifically, and especially who he was when he made Alien, because it was quite a long time ago now, obviously, it's the 40th anniversary, but also because uh, he had, a, uh, in some ways, a very analogous background to Cameron, and in some ways, a very divergent one. And I think we can all agree clearly that Alien is an undisputable masterpiece of film, and Ridley Scott, although he's not the only reason behind that, is one of the major contributing factors to it. So we thought it'd be fun to kind of look at his life a little bit, look at where he came from, and then look at how the shoot went, how the editing went, and how who he was as an artist influenced the film to being the great one that it is. Definitely. Um, it's. I think Alien is anomalous. Alien and Aliens are anomalous in some ways in terms of how they were made because you had these really untested but strong personalities in directors who really made sure that this vision these visions of film of film 
came to the screen. And as we know, after Aliens, things weren't going very well. Uh, for the directors, for Fox, how the films were made, just all the producer and executive producer, uh, just meddling that got involved with the filmmaking process. It's not to say that Alien didn't experience a little bit of that, for sure, but it was, I guess, mitigated in a better way. Um, Ridley Scott really had a better, he was 40 years old, he had a much better head on his shoulders, he was a father, he'd been in the industry for a long, long time, maybe not making films, he had The Duelist, which... I haven't seen, but Patrick has seen that he could he can discuss. But he was just in a place where he knew what he was doing. Exactly. And I do think that his strength of personality and Cameron's strength of personality are so extraordinary that they can either be incredible artistic assets or they can make you somebody nobody ever wants to talk to again, right? And lucky for them both, they had that personality type and they had the genius to back it up. Just like Orson Welles, just like a lot of the great, you know, the RKO filmmakers, like a lot of the great filmmakers in history have had that kind of crazy personality that because of the strength of their vision manages to see through the incredible complexities of the Hollywood studio system. And we're going to get a little bit into that on this episode, because like you just said, Alien was not not beset by a lot of production issues and a lot of going through different script revisions and different director's choices and different things. There was a lot going on leading up to the production of this film as well. But as soon as Scott came on board, there was this laser focus. All of this, well, what if we did this? What if we did this? What if we did that? It was like, no, we are doing this. This is the budget, how we're going to shoot it. I know how these things work. I know how to film this. I am not a newbie. I am a genius. And I am ready to make this movie with these people that I can't wait to work with. So we're going to get into that. You want to go through his early life a little bit just to kind of set the stage? Yeah, go for yeah. it. So, of course, he was born in 1937 uh, in really, really, really northern England. He actually was born just south of the border with um, Scotland, as uh, as we know, because uh, the there's a, an event happening near Ridley Scott's birthplace later this year that uh, we was, there was a little bit of confusion between you and I about <laughs> if that was actually Scotland. Yeah, I thought it England. was in Scotland. I really did. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like 20 feet away from it, so to be fair. Oh, you know, maybe I'll cross over. You should. Go say hi to uh, the Conor Murdoch <laughs> while you're there. Uh, so his father fought in World War II, and because of that, his mother was a really dominant influence on his and his brother's early lives. Um, he has talked quite a bit about this in various media and commentaries through the years, but he feels that his mother's influence on him early on is part of why he's always gravitated so much more to female um, protagonists and female heroes and characters. And it's easy to lose sight of that because he's made so many films and they've been so different through the years. But he has had a really great history of writing and well, directing female characters that feel um, interesting and very strong and, and captivating. And, and uh, it's not an accident, you know? That was his upbringing, and that's what he learned from. And when his dad was gone fighting in one of the great catastrophes of the 20th century, his mom was the rock that he had, that he and his brother Tony held on to, you know? And I think you see that a lot in his subsequent films. Um, so film was a big part of his early life because his great-uncle, and I didn't know this until I was reading this morning, actually, uh, owned a cinema chain. I've totally forgotten that that was a, a thing. So one of the first cinema chains in Europe was actually in his family. And so they were exposed to uh, movies really early on in life. And he early on found out that sci-fi was a big passion of his. Um, and then specifically, this catalyzed when he saw 2001 A Space Odyssey and decided, that's what I'm going to do. Right? So that was just over a decade before Alien came out. And he was already out of school by that point. But that was the thing that for him was like, that is what is cape that is possible and that is what i want to do somehow in my lifetime i want to achieve something like what kubrick did in 2001 so he goes to the royal college of art 
<clears throat> graduates, and he gets um, employed by the BBC primarily uh, in a lot of very production-focused roles. Again, there's a parallel with Cameron here, right? So he was a set dresser. He was on set doing um, some design work. He was actually tapped, apparently, to design the the Daleks and Doctor Who, and then somebody else got the job, and uh, and and he didn't. But that shows you early on that, like, even though he was in his 20s at that point, in his early 30s, that he was already entrusted with that level of design detail because he was brilliant, right? And he was showing that off every time he went into a room with any group of executives. They were like, oh, we should have him on this project because he will make it better. Um, in the midst of working for the BBC, he starts directing some television episodes of smaller things. And then uh, later on in the late 60s, going into the early 70s, he and his brother Tony form Ridley Scott Associates. So a little, it's a little weird that it was formed by he and Tony, but it's just called Ridley Scott Associates. But hey, that's the that's the personality type. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to question that. Yeah, he took the lead. <laughs> he did. And, and it was his clearly his thing. You later know? on, it was turned to Scott Free, which which. Right. You know, has a far more like familiar familial ring to it, like right. like their last name is Scott, so it kind of represented both of them or all of them because he had three brothers at the time, or right. yeah, he did right. three brothers at the time. And it's and it's worth pointing out that Scott Free, as as you obviously know, has gone on to produce some of the real landmark pictures of our time. Like they're all over everything, both film, TV. Um, it's it's a huge company, and it, that's this other part of his personality that I'm sure we'll get into. Is he is just such a he is just like basically a, a, an endless reservoir of energy, right? He has that like entrepreneurial drive to just make, to do, to build, to make, to make his time here worth something. So RSA goes on to become one of the dominant commercial powerhouses of 1970s Europe. They were producing all sorts of great stuff. Many of those commercials are considered landmarks of the time. Um, and they were clearly making things that were artistically like, uh, you know, film level, but, uh, but for, you know, commercial purpose, which I think got them a lot of attention. All right, so so going back to kind of like his timeline at this point. So 1937, he was born. 1963, he graduated from art school. 1968, he, find, he founds uh, Ridley Scott Associates. And then almost a decade later, 1977, he makes The Duelists, right? So that was uh, like, you can see that he's not going right into film like a lot of young directors do. He's taking his time and he's building this resume that is very diverse and has a lot of production stuff so that when he starts making movies, which he was 40 when he made The Duelists, which predates Alien by two years even, he was like a, he was an expert. He knew exactly what he was doing and then when he was in the right place at the right time he was able to really act on it. Yeah. You know, as I've listened to you go through this, a lot of the stuff I'm familiar with, some of it I'm not familiar with, but again what's really uh what really stands out to me is the similarity of character between i know this is a obviously this is a discussion about ridley scott but i just keep thinking of james cameron these men were very established in their career uh they knew what they were doing they weren't pedestrian they weren't like oh this is my first feature film uh they had a kind of a history behind them like yes i can do this give me the tools and i can do this and also i think it's it's worthy to note and i know we're discussing more of ridley scott but the the script for alien was already in place i mean yes it had to be re, it was rewritten a couple of times but he kind of moved into this project with an existing story um and that's what ridley scott excels at um his work in commercials he you know they would give him pitches for ideas and they were like okay can you make this for us and that's what he would do he's really really astute at bringing a vision to life 
It's seeing something right. that's established, whether it's a story, whether it's whatever, doing his design, getting input, and then like even just recently with, uh, I think it was for a car, no, Hennessy. It was a Hennessy commercial that he recently produced, really lush, really lavish, um, and really bold and striking and has that Ridley Scott aesthetic to it. Um, mm-hmm. He just right on point. And, and, and that harkens... That Hennessy thing harkens back quite a lot to his work with Chanel that yeah. RSA did going into the 80s, which is, again, it's the same. It's just like a complete cinematic approach to commercials, you know, which was not something people did at the time. Like, that was not the way things were advertised very much before the 70s, before the mod movement and before there was that whole push towards, like, incorporating kind of art house things into commercials. That was groundbreaking. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry about that. No, no, that's fine. Uh, I, again, I think another thing that I think about with Ridley Scott is, yes, he's a designer, but he's infamously known for his Ridley Grams and if no one knows what Ridley Grams are a lot of people do they're essentially storyboards he would storyboard his own work and they did have professional storyboards with Alien with the Duelist but he would also do his own version before those people would even come in because he needed to see the film the commercial whatever they're doing in his head first and I think it's really a brilliant thing it's really uh, it, it, it lets you know that this man took these things personally he really invested in his own time whereas a lot of people even a lot of directors today they're not designers they're, they're not people who can draw or illustrate so they i think about uh denis villeneuve for 2049 he had a couple of different storyboard artists with him for like a year mapping out the film whereas ridley scott was like well no i have my own ideas and there's essentially books of his Ridley Grams that you can, I think uh, some of them that are available in other books like Alien Vault, just outlining what this man did before the storyboard artist came in, before H.R. Giger came in. It's very interesting. Yeah, and, and it's worth pointing out that like, you know, even among storyboard art, they're exceptional, right? Like, I mean, we, we, we had Gabriel Hardman on last year on the show for Alien Day, who's a, a professional storyboard artist who has also done comics and he's done some Alien stuff. And his stuff is, is amazing. But I even prefer Ridley's. And Ridley is not a quote-unquote storyboard artist. The Ridley Grams to me, are so evocative and they're so Mobius-like and they're so uh, extraordinary. It's just, it, it feels like a published work of art. Yes. And he did that really fast, yeah, too. Did. That's the other thing. It wasn't like he was slaving over this. Like, that was almost just coming out of his id, getting it down on paper, knowing, because he knew, again, exactly what it was going to look like, and he knew that the best way to get the studio to go along with it was to present them with something exceptional. Mm-hmm. We're going to get more to Ridley Graham's in a, in a bit. Um, but again, I, I also want to point out that there's a, an interesting parallel here with Hodorowsky's Dune Project, which has been coming up a lot for very valid reasons <laughs> in this series. But Hodorowsky, of course, worked with Mobius to produce this 400-something page storyboard book that's hardbound and is colossally um, magnificent. And it, there's only like two of them in the world or something. And of course, that film never got made. But that same approach to detail um, is the same thing that Ridley, who was not affiliated with this Dune project, although like everybody else was. But he was attached it. to it for a little bit. Did you know that? Really? Yes, he was. No. Yes, Ridley Scott was attached to Dune for like a small window, and then he was not. To the Hodorowsky era? Of well, it, to to, the, well David, it would have been his version, version, but it was the version that eventually got to Hodorowsky. Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, no I read idea. that cool. uh, about... Six months ago, and I was like, "Whoa, I never knew this." It's very interesting. Yeah, I had no, I had no idea. Oh, I'm not surprised because apparently everybody who was alive was affiliated with that freaking Tune project. It's insane. Um, 
So, uh, all right. So going into his film stuff. So again, he was a commercial filmmaker. He was a production guy. He was a tech guy. And then he makes The Duelists, which was an immediate huge hit. And I want to, um, before I even get into that, I want to go back for a second and just look at how successful Ridley has been, regardless of whether or not you like his more recent work, which I, I agree, even though I, I love a lot of it, is kind of all over the place. This is a guy who's been nominated for three Oscars. His films have won many Oscars. Uh, those, three, those three films, by the way, were Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, and Black Hawk Down. Uh, he has, he obviously is a knight. He's one of the most culturally relevant British figures in the world stage. Like he's somebody who over this career has uh, has changed the world's relationship with film in some way. He has really changed things in, in filmmaking. So uh, that and that propensity to get accolades is something that has stuck with him his whole life because he's brilliant. And one of the earliest things that he was really known for was The Duelists, which was screened at Cannes and was a absolute phenomenon. It won the debut prize. It was nominated for the main prize at the Cannes Film Festival as his first ever film. Um, and it, it is, even today, it's regarded as one of the classics of 1970s cinema, compared a lot with Barry Lyndon, the Kubrick film. Um, and I think in some ways favorably with it, because I think that uh, The Duelists has an amazing narrative thrust to it. So I'll, I'll go through The Duelists just quickly in case people haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a while. Uh, it's about two French officers during the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, they have a minor disagreement in the beginning that leads to an increasing series of escalating duels which were extensively fight choreographed they're very realistic to the time period and they are very psychological so although it's um in some ways sort of like an action film in that there's all these fight scenes they're they're very psychologically done and they're also in the midst of some of the most unbelievably detailed production design i've, I've ever seen again like Barry Lyndon is one of the only films that I think it even compares to because everything from the uniforms to the lighting to the scenery to the ways people are interacting with each other, the social conventions, it is so on point for what the Napoleonic era would have been like. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of the work of uh, Robert Eggers, who I don't know if that's somebody who's on your radar, but he's the guy who directed The Witch and he's also directing uh, The Lighthouse, which I'm so... So excited about. Okay. I, I I am familiar with Eggers. For some reason, I thought The Witch was directed by the guy who did Midsummer, but no. The guy who did no. Midsummer did... Hereditary. Hereditary. That's Ari Aster. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, they, they kind of... They both kind of like broke out at the same time, mm -hmm. so it's, it's mm -hmm. an easy thing to get mixed up. But I think their styles are very different. But the thing with The Witch... So... So Eggers was like a, a very prominent award-winning costume designer right before making The Witch. And he kind of fell into directing as a result of trying to like achieve these, this visual vision that he had. And that attention to detail from the very beginning was, is, I think, one of the great hallmarks of his work as well. And I think, again, it's like Ridley and Cameron, these, these guys who did, they didn't go to school to be film directors. They went to school to learn design and production and to learn the aspects of telling stories. And then they kind of fell into filmmaking as the only way that they could realize what they actually saw in their heads, you know? And I think that's like such a, a great thing. So anyway, I just want to say that The Duelists um, has a lot of parallels to Alien for me, and I'll just go through a couple of them really quickly. Um, one of the most striking is this mix of very static compositions with handheld camera work. And I think uh, it's easy with Alien to forget how much of it was shot using handheld non-steadicam stuff because the scenes are such beautiful tableaus. It's so carefully arranged. And those are the visuals that really stick with you. But when things are intense or when things are heating up or when things are uncertain, Scott employs this handheld thing that's very jittery and very shaky. And the cuts are very, very, very fast, right? 
I mean, like maybe the, the best example of this is is Kane getting attacked by the facehugger where there's something like 30 cuts in the span of, of a second and a half, right? And the, and the camera goes completely askew. And it's not askew in the way we see with like Dutch angles where things are like just sort of supposed to like throw you off psychologically. Like Scott doesn't do that. He's very geometrically careful and he's very kind of precise. But then when he disrupts that, it's really fucking scary. And the duelist does that because the duelist is it's sort of like a series of beautiful oil paintings interrupted by like fights that feel like they were shot in 2009 or something it's just it's so extraordinary this mix of static and motion and kinetic and i think that's a big part of scott's style that i wanted to unpack in a little bit um also in terms of parallels with the duelist and alien there's the attention to detail and the last thing i want to bring up is this very specific acceleration of pace so i think one of the great things with alien and we'll get into this in a minute is how he and terry rawlings managed to create this feeling that you were basically locked in a roller coaster and you knew the top of the hill was coming and it felt like it, but it took forever to get to the top of the roller coaster. And then as soon as you started going downhill, you could not get off without dying, you know? And The Duelist feels like that, even though it's a historical epic and it's and it's like a it's completely different film. Uh, it starts with something so innocuous. It starts with this sort of uh, an accidental injury during a very funny, kind of, not, not funny, but a very kind of relaxed duel. And then that like little injury leads to a series of events that are spread out enough throughout the film that it does you don't realize things are getting out of hand until they're really, really out of hand. And by that point, it's just pulse pounding edge of your seat. And I feel like uh, that is very much alien to me. So anyway, uh, I, I guess it's time to move into alien unless you have anything else you wanted to add. No, I, I, I mean, just what you're talking about in terms of and I think about as other films in terms of a breakneck pace. I mean, I think as he's released films later in his life, that pace might increase a little bit, but I think you're really right. Like he, there's this momentum behind his work, but there's a buildup behind it. And then there's just like nonstop crashing. Like all of these things are happening at once. And as I think about him, um, and I, I can't remember exactly the year, maybe 2005, he released kingdom of heaven. That is probably mm -hmm. one of my all time favorite films by him. I still haven't seen that. What? Um, yeah. And with just a beautiful score by Hans Zimmer, right. uh, it is a spiritual experience of a film, uh, and it's it's very very underrated. But I that to me is the Ridley Scott uh, that I love, and it's the Ridley Scott that same sense of like spiritual experience I experience in Blade Runner. Um, he's a very you can feel this man's his outlook on life. You can feel this man's what he or sense his his brain and how it's working and how he's perceiving the world by watching his films the discussion she has even an alien about sort of like entering into a bigger reality entering into something that's bigger than who you are which is much of what happened in Alien with Ash and Lambert, and, or I'm sorry, with Lambert and Dallas and Kane going into the derelict. What that was, was these people stepping into a larger experience of life. And really, Ridley Scott is, that's really all he's been about, is these larger experiences and how that changes you. And are we alone? And I don't even mean alone in the sense of is there a God or are there aliens? But are we alone in, as we walk the earth? And he really tries to answer that in a way. And that's 
to me, that's something that you see throughout his films, and I think it's a really beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah, and I, I agree, and I think part of why I get that sense is that his films usually have a pretty distinct line of demarcation, where there's like character building stuff in the beginning that doesn't feel like it's expositional. It's very much like you get to kind of know, like you see this with Thelma and Louise, you see this with Black Hawk Down. You just sort of get accustomed to these characters, and you kind of allow them to interact, and you kind of become sort of sucked into their lives, and then something happens that flips it on its head. And that moment of transfiguration, where something changes and there's no going back, to me, is a really Ridley Scott thing, right? A lot of movies take their time with that. A lot of movies allow events to unfold uh, in a really kind of spread out way, and with a kind of a uh, you know a gradual sort of denouement, and then a, you know it, 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 you can kind of feel the pace of the film before you see it, and you kind of get that expectation um, delivered upon. But with Scott, a lot of the time, I don't know where the movie's going for a while, and then once I see where it's going, I'm like, oh my god, of course that was where it was going. But uh, it's it's surprising, right? I mean, it's amazing to think of the audacity of Alien sometimes. Like, this movie, nothing of consequence in any real way happens for, like, so much of the film. And that's something that people who watch it always comment on, right? Like, they're always like, man, I didn't even know there was an alien in this movie for the first 48 minutes or something, right? And then once the alien gets there, then everything before it becomes so... Uh, important to what happens after it because by the time actions are happening with these characters there's uh you know like who the characters are and how and they're your vector to experience it yeah i it's funny obviously we're talking about ridley scott here but what i love about alien is just like you said for the first 48 minutes what what's going on it's not a story about an alien or a creature it's a story about people that's what this film is about and the title means Who's the alien here? Because for a while, it's Ash. For a while, there's a lot of speculation. Who is this guy? There's even a discussion between Ripley and Dallas. Who is he? Where did he come from? I don't know. That's who they gave me right before we, you know. So the idea of what the alien could or could not be is really up in the air. So right away, we're like looking around the ship. What's going down? And then... Obviously, as they go into the derelict, we kind of see things kind of play out. But that title really... Um, it's not just about the xenomorph, and I think that's the, the beauty of Ridley Scott and his ability to tell that story was that he left it kind of in the air. It was nebulous, like, okay, and then even later when the alien is on board, you also have Ash, who's kind of revealed himself, so now there's a double threat. And then you have the company that's also revealed themselves via Ash, via Ripley looking. So this, this idea of an alien on board is multi-layered. Right. And you're attuned to look for those layers, yeah. right? Because you've, you've been treated as very intelligent by the filmmakers throughout, right? So you know, like, oh, I see what they're doing. They're also talking about this. Oh, but wait a minute. What if it also could mean this? And that's how you pay attention, you know? Um, I mean, it's a, a very specific Ridley contribution to Alien, I think, is when you read the script, like, obviously, that the same, it's there, like the four-act structure, the progression of events, the fact that nothing happens for a while. But on the script, like, that part where nothing's happening for a while is uh, is kind of incidental right like it you kind of can read through it and it's not very quick but scott and rawlings really uh, like extended a lot of those scenes the first cut of the film is three hours long you know they they went as much as they could into um dilating those earlier scenes which is totally counterintuitive for what was a, a sci-fi horror film you know like you'd think like let's get to the action let's get people in their seats and they made that very paradoxical and beautiful decision to not do that and that to me is very much Scott. It's the same reason why when you watch a movie like Gladiator, you're totally sucked into the world of ancient Rome. It's the reason why when you watch a movie like, um, 
like Thelma and Louise, you're totally sucked into this journey that these characters are on. Like, you feel like no matter what happens, I'm going to be glad that I spent this time getting to know the characters. And then when what happens surprises you and freaks you out or delights you, then it feels like earned. You know, it feels like you're not just watching the machinery of a movie being made. And I think that's part of why Scott's such a genius. I don't know how many people notice this, and I think certainly that you and I do, but you brought up Gladiator and the type of director he is. What... There's a couple of shots in Gladiator that are very iconic. Do you remember what those are? They're opening shots. Uh, well, I, I think of the of the field, yes. right? Of the hand brushing the the grass yeah. in the field. Yeah. Um, and I think of I think of Maximus standing in the Colosseum and yelling at the crowd. There's there's quite a, there's a lot of moments like that that to me are extremely cinematographic. Yes. Like, what are you thinking? Of? Well, uh, specifically the moment in the field where you see his hand yeah. over the the. The grass, the long grass, or whatever it is. That's so beautifully shot, isn't it? Who planted it? (laughs) (laughs) Who planted it? Um, But what I love about that is that you can see moments like that in a lot of Ridley Scott's films where he's taking a moment to bask in the beauty of wonder, in in the wonder of nature, in the surroundings of this life. A lot of directors don't do that. A lot of directors don't take that moment. And it You know who does take that moment? Who? My mom? Terrence Malick oh. <laughs> and your mom and your mama oh. <laughs> but I know you, you and I both no, love Terrence yeah, Malick Terrence that's Malick, part of yeah, why I, I mean, love that's his that's all work he does is take those moments when those I moments that explode oh. and you just, just bask in it right that's a discussion we should have about the tree of life sometime that'd be a great that's one Patreon of my favorite things we should do oh, it's amazing but yeah. I really really love that about Ridley Scott um, because those moments don't forward the narrative they don't really yes it, there's a, it's a little bit of a character moment but most of the time you're in an editing room and most people would be like let's move on but Ridley Scott takes those moments to really even in Covenant and some of his later films um, that are controversial and div- divisive he takes some moments to to have people just kind of be in their surroundings and it's really beautiful I mean look at the opening scene in Covenant with uh, with where, where they're in um that like that, I don't know what kind of room it would be, but sitting on the lake, right? And David is walking over to his to his father, and it's just basking in that white mm-hmm. glow with these objects sitting there, looking out at this amazing tableau, and and not nothing's happening. It's very yeah. quiet, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. And uh, there's very few directors who have that sensibility. Um, even I think of David Fincher, who I'm a huge fan of. He doesn't really have that sensibility. He kind of he's kind of breakneck and other things, amazing things, but to have a director say, we're going to stop and we're going to experience the wonder of this flower. Terrence Malick is someone who does that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I I love that about Ridley Scott. Yeah. Although it's, I mean, I I totally agree with what you're saying about David Fincher, but it it is, it's incredible how amazing his films are and yet how different he is from Ridley Scott. Like we were watching Zodiac the other night, which I, I just absolutely fucking love that movie. And, uh, I was just, I was just like, man, what a, what a, propulsive filmmaker he is you know like you you put on anything that fincher has done i mean whether it be zodiac or seven or alien three and it's just you, you just cannot do anything but get sucked into it you know it's amazing so because we're kind of running along on time here I, I wanted to get into the shoot if that's cool with you a little bit let's do it All right, so uh, so as we mentioned earlier on, the, it was originally going to be shot, at least presumably, by O'Bannon, who was a film... He just done Dark Star. This was like a follow-up to it. Uh, the studio did not want O'Bannon to do it. They wanted Walter Hill to do it. 
which would have been interesting. And I don't think, I mean, he's done some great films in his own right. Like, I, I would have watched it, but um, I'm glad that they didn't. He'll turn them down because he had other commitments and because he didn't feel confident with this genre. He didn't feel like he could really do justice to it. So then the studio and Brandywine and everybody, they start looking at other directors to take it up who would specifically not treat it as pulp science fiction. And they went through a lot of people and did not feel like they had the right fit. And then they were like, what about the guy that did that duelist thing that screened at Cannes? And they started talking about it and looking at it. And they're like, we should maybe, you know, approach him. Which, again, just like um, so many of these other director directorial choices, let, let alone, you know, Jean-Pierre Genet, but David Fincher and James Cameron, too. It's like a crazy stroke of genius that they decided to look at Scott, who was not a sci-fi filmmaker. He'd only done one thing. And it was a historical epic about sword fighting, right? But they saw something in the way the duelist was put together that made them think that he would have the attention to detail and the seriousness to tackle something like Alien. And if he could do it, then he would do it incredibly well. So I have um, one of my, you know, on, on our Giger episode a couple weeks ago, uh, I took out one of my favorite books on Giger, which is sort of like a rare rare-ish book. Today, I brought out The Book of Alien, which is one of my favorite things, which some of our listeners might have. I used to own that. Oh, I, I had the mm. version I had the version with the red title. Yeah, they, this, is the fir- this is the first one. This came out right, right around the time the movie came you out. You bitch. Because you can see, see, the, see the branding? See how the branding is like all like fucking weird? It's awesome. I need it to like looks it nothing like the alien that we know. Yeah, you know? yeah. But it's a, it's an amazing book. So if anybody um, has a chance, it's called The Book of Alien. It's by Paul Scanlon and Michael Gross, and there's a couple editions of it. But it has a lot of great quotes in it. And part of what I love is that these quotes are not from, for example, the 1999, you know, the commentary track. They're not from Scott's interviews for the anthology. They're not the things that we've seen before. Like this is him as a 42 year old talking to a bunch of people about this movie that was just hot off the presses, right? So. Uh, so they approached Scott as a potential filmmaker, and here's what he said in the book of Alien. He said, quote, I was in the middle of developing another project, and the script dropped on my desk. I read it in 40 minutes, and bang, the script was simple and direct. It was the reason why I did the film, unquote. So the script was why he came on board. That was his strength. Really, that was the strength is that story was so powerful. And it was even if it was going through some stages of being rewritten, which most scripts do, you you rarely get a script in Hollywood where it's a first time writer. Even if the writer has done other things, smaller things, if you've never done a big Hollywood film, you're going to submit a script. They might buy it. They're going to have someone else rewrite it. It happened with uh, Prometheus. It happened with Covenant to some degree. It's happened with... uh, uh, even David uh, Hampton Fancher's Blade Runner 2049. But I think it was really just this this happenstance of the right people at the right time and this director. And also it was shot in England. So I think it also really played well with just the crew that he was going to have, him being British, them respecting that, knowing who he is, knowing his career. He's been doing it a long time. It was just it was just this fantastic dynamic of everybody in the right place at the right time. Studio didn't wasn't meddling too much. They wanted a little bit of this and that, but they weren't like down his throat. There was budget concerns. Um, but it, it yeah, it's this. It was this monolith of of a production that went fairly smoothly yeah. for the time, even with the hiccups it was having. And I think there's a specific reason for that, which I'm going to talk about in one second. But before I do, you brought up the t- the people on set, right, at Shepard and Studios. There were something like 200 technicians 
associated with this film. And they respected Scott because he was one of them, right? He was literally one of them. That was what he was doing professionally before he got into, you know, the other side of the camera. And so, like, he knew exactly what they needed to make, what they needed work. He knew how to how to shoot their set. He knew what their strengths were and how to make sure that they felt respected and felt observed. And, like, you know, of course they respected him. And that's why they got – I mean, because here's the thing. is like – so they did their best work because they knew it was being valued and they were given space and time and conditions to do it. And Scott got the best results also because he, having made that stuff and having understood it so well, was able to light it and shoot it and frame it in a way that would maximize the aesthetic impact of that stuff on film, right? Um, but so the reason why I think the studio basically got out of the way was specifically his Ridley Grams. So before the Ridley Grams, the budget for the film was half of what it actually ended up being. He submitted that to the studio shortly after coming on board and the studio said, okay. And then they just basically just got out of the way and let him make the movie, which even though later on, uh, it was not the most, I mean, he was going, he was coming right up to the top of the budget. He was running out of time. He was over schedule. The studio still allowed him to make some pretty big creative jumps because he was very clearly was a genius from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost speechless to some degree what he achieved with Alien because Alien, it's just unlike any other film. It really is in terms of, I mean, he has been called the father of science fiction for two films, Alien and Blade Runner. But that is no accident. It's not a coincidence. It's because the man knew what he was doing. But just talking about Alien specifically, it's a film that's so unobtrusive. It's not like, ah, it's none of that. It's very personal. It's very quiet. Mm. It's very cerebral. Even the dialogue, there's not much dialogue. To, to really create a film that way that's firing on all cylinders while not telling you too much but showing you everything, that takes a level of genius that you don't come by. That there's a lot of directors in the Hollywood system who are amazing. There's a lot of directors or you know, or who, who can put out really good looking products, but they don't really speak to us. Maybe they're fun, but that's all they are. Oh, that was great. What's the next film? You know what I mean? Whereas with Ridley Scott, even the films that are more controversial or more divisive, they, even films that I, you know, with Covenant or Prometheus, I think about those films almost every fucking day. So for Ridley Scott to have created a film and when he was 42, which was the first Alien film, that is, felt like it was this, we were all on this ship with everyone. And to know, to balance how quiet the film is, how much we need to show, when lines, obviously he didn't write the script, but he edit, he, you know, he was in the editing room he made creative choices as to when things are going to happen, how they're going to happen. And the film resonates with us probably arguably more than aliens does in its, in its own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, well, it's more personal. Yeah. You know? It's far more personal. I mean, aliens is really personal too, but in, in a very bombastic, wonderfully bombastic way. Whereas alien is like, no, you're going to face your fear. You're going to face your fear. And yes, this is terrifying you almost like, but I'll be with you, but here's the situation that you're in. What are you going to do? And that's almost that mm. quiet tone, the, the, the sound of the Nostromo, even, even the creative choices, that famous sound that we're all familiar with, that we hear a little bit in Blade Runner of the, of the Nostromo, that, that, mm. the, yeah, the, the sound of the mother's womb, um, whereas this, this place becomes a womb and then it becomes 
a place of destruction. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then we're not even discussing the whole Giger aesthetic and the entrance into the derelict and what that was like. And still in 2019, we can watch that scene and go, what the fuck is this place? Even with Prometheus and with Alien Covenant, we're like, what is this place that they're in? It's Unlike anything, we've, isn't that amazing? It's absolutely amazing. It looks it looks just as real as it did. That like I mean, if I have it on 4K, yeah. and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this looks even realer than I thought it. Did. I mean, it's it. There is no aspect of it that makes it feel like a commercial product that was thrown out there for people. It feels like a fucking dream that I had that I don't remember having. And you know? part of the wonder and brilliance of those shots, yes, it was incredibly created by Giger, incredibly designed, amazing sets. All of those things. What makes those shots so incredible are the time that's taken to let us breathe inside them. That's so, you know, those those famous scenes of Kane coming up from underneath and, and he's like, what the hell is this? So no, actually, that was when he was in the um, what the hell? in the egg chamber. But when he climbs up and you hear that sound that I always talk about, that like chain. Don't you do Don't you Yeah. And the camera's like a wide tracking out shot. And we're given a minute just to breathe in that space. That's a creative decision that does not happen anymore. People are like, let's get to the next scene. Let's get to the next scene. And because those scenes could breathe, because they could function on their own, and we could be with Kane in that space, made it believable. Because that's mm. what we do. Even when we go to the Grand Canyon, when we go to Yosemite, when we go to you know parts of the USA or, or parts around the world that are um, tourist places we all do the same things we're like whoa even though we've seen isn't pic- that interesting it's very interesting yeah. even though we've seen these places in in pictures and photos and videos when we get there we're like i mean i've been to the grand we're speechless have you been to the grand canyon i have yeah so Never the grand canyon it. is to me like an experience of the derelict and also mm-hmm. with the grand canyon if you travel around that area which me and my friends did you can see a lot of ruins from the Anastasi Indians. I think that's, is that what I'm saying? Was that the right tribe? The Anastasi? I don't know. I think the, uh, were the Pueblo down there too? Yeah, they were. But so they would build, build villages in the sides of mountains. Mm. And a lot of yeah, historical right. records said all of a sudden they just disappeared. And much of their villages that they built let remain intact. And you can go and see those. But I've been in them. And it's like you're in the derelict. It's like, mm-hmm. And you're stepping into history. You're stepping into a world you have no idea where you're at. It doesn't feel like you're on Earth. And that's mm-hmm. what the space jockey room, pilot room, whatever, felt like. It just felt like completely legitimate. This was a completely legitimate civilization that we have stumbled upon. I've never seen anything sold so perfectly. Neither have I. Neither have I. And, and nothing else, you're absolutely right, that was beautifully said, nothing else captures that same feeling of actual awe, you know, where you walk into something that you didn't think was possible, and everybody on Earth who does that has the same exact reaction. Like, everybody who goes to the Grand Canyon for the first time does the same thing. They shut up, and they just stand there, right? Yeah, it's like you're, you're in, in the church. face of something. Yeah. When you're in the face of something like that, you don't talk about it. You don't, like, move around. And Scott knows that. And that's not in the script, Right. O'Bannon's script is also an amazing act of genius. I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but that is Scott. Scott is the one saying, let's not go anywhere. Let's enjoy the egg silo as long as we can. 
let's sit here and just fucking stare at this stuff because everybody watching it will be doing that internally and everybody watching it will want to hit pause, right? So he allows the film to pause. He gives it that, that space of breath. So that way when things happen, because remember that egg silo is immediately before that extraordinarily frenetic part that I mentioned earlier on, which is the, the ovomorph exploding, right? Like that. So you have a, a section where there's like two cuts in the span of maybe, maybe a minute and 10 seconds to 35 cuts in the span of, of a second and a half. And it's that incredible mix of the wonder and beauty and awe and terror with what just happened that was a visceral experience that I can't process yet. And then immediately it's silent again, right? You hear his scream echo out and then it's silent. And that is that is what is so fucking amazing about Scott's ability to make films. I wanted to, to share a quick quote about the creature too before we wrap because we're getting a little bit long a time. Um, so a lot of people, you know, talk about how this was kind of Jaws in space, you know, and a lot of people, well, Scott himself said that he wanted to make basically the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on a spaceship. Um, and I think it's easy to reduce it. To, I mean, I mean, you know better than anybody, Jaws is like one of my absolute favorite films of all time. I but love it I think too. it yeah. is not, yeah, it's, an, it's one of the great films. But the reason why Alien is more psychologically deep than that to me is, is because of the ineffable and et cetera. But the thing with Jaws is that the the reasons why they didn't show the shark, which of course is part of why it's so brilliant, was because of the the fact that the shark was malfunctioning constantly, right? Um, the reason why they don't show the big chap xenomorph very much was not that. It was very intentional. So in that same book of Alien, Scott has a quote. He says, uh, I've never liked horror. He says, quote, I've never liked horror films before because in the end, it's always been a man in a rubber suit. Well, there's one way to deal with that. The most important thing in a film of this type is not what you see, but the effect of what you think you saw. It's sort of like an afterburn. What you think you saw. End quote. Yeah. And to uh, me, that sums it up right there, right? Yeah. It's what our, mi- what our mind creates is more scary than sometimes what's actually there. Not to say the xenomorph isn't scary. It's fucking scary. But yeah, it's what your mind is like, well, what did you see? What did you, you know, see? Like, what just happened, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, and that's yeah. why that's why we debate Lambert's death constantly is because like we don't really know. Like, there's all these True. moments like that. These moments of like, what what happened? And then you can't get it out of your head because you can't. There's no closure to it. One right? thing though about the whole Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space, I don't agree with that assessment. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is very kind of blasé. It's very okay, based off loosely based off the story of Ed Gein. A lot of people know that. Alien, I just feel like those comparisons, even a haunted house in space, I don't think it's that at all. I think it's, mm. uh, if anything, it's a home invasion. It's not just a home invasion by one person. It's a home invasion by uh, an alien creature, a home invasion by someone you thought was one of your family, and a home invasion by the home itself, which was the company slash mother. Like, mm. so it's again it's working on all of these layers um and right. i feel like and I, I don't think that people are intentionally or even ridley scott are intentionally trying to water it down to what it is but it is not the texas chainsaw massacre in space it is on and, and a lot of even people say oh it's a b-level you know horror film on with an a-level cast or whatever no it's not this is a class a science fiction masterpiece end of story there's nothing yeah. like and it. anybody who says that if you're listening to it just turn this off because you're wrong because <laughs> <laughs> you're crazy because it is not a b-level film with an a-level cast it's a masterwork it is i i, I, I don't want to take anything away from texas chainsaw because i think the original is, is a great film oh i'm not I saying it you. isn't i'm just saying i, it's I agree a very with different it's, it's a very, very different approach right? i mean it's a real right. world thing uh you know this guy's crazy whatever it's um, it's it's dramatic it's it's salacious it's 
mm-hmm. everything alien isn't, but it needs to be because it's a different story. Right. But what's interesting and revealing about that, because so remember Scott, as you know, was the one who said Texas Chainsaw in Space. Mm-hmm. He said that about what he wanted to do. So I think Scott probably, because he had just seen Texas Chainsaw because it just come out, he probably was thinking, oh, what if I can make that same kind of fear happen to people out in space? Because that was something that, you know, that hadn't been, been done very seriously before. Most of these films were B-movies. Most of these films were just sort of extraordinary, fantastic adventures that were wacky and fun and crazy. But Scott was like, what if we took that same that same um, approach to realism, that same kind of cinema verite horror technique that Tobe Hooper did for Texas Chainsaw and put that in space? And then I think what happened was Scott got on set and he started collaborating with people like Giger and Ron Cobb. And he started understanding like, oh, we're capable of more than that. And as all these people kind of came together, this new vision emerged, which was way more subtle and way more um, poetic, I think. So he kind of accidentally discovered that by working on it, you know, um, I think it's just, uh, just an amazing thing. In closing, I wanted to say, I I think that, you know, Scott's whole, the the reason why he was the only person who could have possibly directed that film was the combination of his background and his attention to, to detail and production, his knowledge of what it takes to make a a film believable and to make it work for years and years and years and years and years because there's no there's no paint showing on the edges right like there's no mistakes in it's it timeless. It, is, it is a real thing yeah. that never it, it doesn't feel like a mistake like a mistake you know that's what alien um, 3 and alien have in common there's a timelessness to both of them they don't feel like they're in mm. any time in space except for maybe some of the the graphics the screens alien is this timeless masterpiece because of their clothing, it's very industrial. People dress like that today. Again, just a stroke of a small stroke of amazing genius. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. Right, off. right, right. No, 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 no. It's fine. And 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 you're absolutely right. It's it's just everything from the very beginning to the very end of the film is so intentional and so artistically relevant and so thought out. You know, and that's why even though the Duelist is a totally different movie, you can see like that's the guy who made Alien. It is that. Everything from the very beginning to the very end was was intentional and was beautiful. Um, so I think it's that combined with the fact that he was not this neophyte filmmaker when he made this movie. He had already had this career, even though it wasn't mostly in feature films. He had already had a career that had equipped him with a lot of tools to be able to come to the studio and say, no, we have to do something new and we're going to. And you're going to go along with that. There's a great quote that Scott has uh, on the, the um, director's cut commentary from or not the director's cut commentary just the the theatrical commentary from 99 where he says quote uh you've got to keep topping yourself if you are more if you're sure about something you've got to stick with it end quote and i think to me i mean so that is why something we didn't get to talk about yet but the the studio wanted this is a great example of scott okay so the studio wanted to cut the fourth act which was in the script and uh, but by the time they were ready to shoot it, Scott was six weeks over over um, his deadline. By that point, they were running out of money and Scott refused to allow them to release the movie without allowing him to shoot that fourth act. And so they did and they relented. And the very final thing shot at Shepard and Studios, which, of course, Scott and his brother and a consortium later bought in the 90s, was this fourth act sequence that is what makes it specifically sublime and scott knew that and that's why he knew that and he and rawlings as they were editing it were like we need to keep this fourth act in there because if you just end with this spaceship exploding then it's just like okay great Uh, it's a it's a hero you know like taking off into the sunset 
uh, I'm so glad that nightmare's over. But the thing is, the nightmare's not over. And that's why it's so brilliant. It's, and he knew that. He knew the psychological state the audience would be in where they had been acclimated by that point to keep being re-energized by things that were shocking them and things that were freaking them out. And he knew if he could just shoot that final sequence, the audience would leave the theater not knowing what could possibly be next. And to me, it is his personality and his strength of vision, ultimately, that have made him such an indelible filmmaker and have really changed the ways directors are treated by studios. And he had to fight for it just like anybody else did. I just think he was more profoundly well-equipped to do so. Yeah, and I think he had a, really had a crew who was also in his corner and some some key people in his corner as well. So yes, he had to fight, but it wasn't the kind of fight where, you know, he did Alien and then he's doing Blade Runner and they're acting like it was his first film, which is right. a conversation for another time. But uh, yeah, it's it's just amazing. Uh, I will say, in closing, another film that I recommend people see, which I think is actually a masterpiece, completely underrated by Ridley Scott, is 1492, The Conquest of Paradise. It's mm, very yeah. long. It is fucking and amazing. scored by Hans Zimmer. No. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, it's not. Oh, it's, no, it's Vangelis. It's, it's, it's Vangelis, right? Never mind. It's not. Yeah, that's yeah, it's Girl. not Hans That score is fucking great. No, the score. I, I listened to it the 1492 so, yeah. score probably once once a week it's just amazing and profound but the level yeah. of detail um sigourney weaver's in it she plays the queen of, mm-hmm. of france just yeah. fucking amazing it was released the same year that alien 3 was released yeah uh, i haven't listened to that score in like fucking decades but i remember it being unbelievable so i'm gonna track that down oh, that yeah. is a great film yeah it's amazing so yeah i think maybe w- there, i feel like there's a lot more to talk about in terms of really scott and his uh just his his personality and his his ability as an artist and maybe we can come back to this at some point with some other people we'll talk about it yeah but I feel like this is an sure. unfinished conversation but for now I think that that does it yeah thanks man thank you thanks for listening everybody for more on Perfect Organism the Alien Saga podcast please visit perfectorganism.com Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.